we're going to get an 8x10 and we're going to make a video and, you know, who's impacted you. But really, that's the question. I mean, if our mission here is to know God and to make Him known, if our mission here is to expand the kingdom of God, then whose lives are you building into? And so we're showing videos. It's kind of funny. Earl led prayer and then Earl is up on the screen. But, um, um, but then uh, one of the things we're doing here is we're just showing our staff just Who's impacted our staff to get to the point where they're leading in a church setting and, and changing, helping to change lives for the kingdom? And maybe you have videos too, of, or maybe you have stories too, and we want to capture some of those stories. We're making some of those, and you could be a YouTube sensation. You can get all of like 65 hits on our YouTube channel, and, uh, and we could take a video of you too. So in our bulletin and our tear-off, there's a little section. So if you, if you have a story, a testimony of what God has done, um, we want to share that with the church. And we've found that one of the best ways to do that is on video because uh, you, could, you could stand up here and do it as many times as you want and uh, get it right. So um, we'd invite you to do that. And all through this series, you're going to be seeing stories of our staff and the people who have changed their lives. And so who is the Clarence Roper in your life? Beverly, was it Clarence Roper? Yeah. <laughs> Her father. Um, who is that person? who just at the right moment had the right amount of influence to just say, you know, have you ever considered following Jesus? Or have you ever considered um, going into ministry? Have you ever considered something like that? Well, you ought to. And most people would say, oh, that doesn't mean anything to me coming from somebody. But from, from this one person, it means a ton. So who is that in your life? And, and, and who are you building into? So we're in the book of Jonah and we're on chapter 2, and it's interesting, and I'll just recap the book of Jonah just for a second as we get into chapter 2 today. It's sort of like this, this giant picture of we live in this world that is not comfortable with reality, right? I mean, our world is not comfortable at all with reality. We have reality TV stars, and we look at reality TV, but it has nothing to do with reality. I mean, we, hide, we constantly live in states of denial. We constantly... Um, you know, reality isn't good enough for us as a people. We, we, we like to, I don't, my wife likes to, to the, the reality of air isn't good enough, and so she lights candles, and I have to smell fancy air because air isn't good enough for me. Or something. I don't know. You know, and, and people are now starting to breathe uh, tasty air. And, and, you know, it's like it, the reality of air isn't even good enough for our world anymore, and so... So something is fundamentally flawed when reality is not good enough for us. And that was the story with Jonah. The reality was not good enough for Jonah. God wanted something huge for Jonah's life. God wanted something huge for another wicked nation. He wanted to see them repent. He wanted to see them come to relationship with the God of the universe. But reality wasn't good enough for Jonah. Jonah didn't like that. And as we went through Jonah chapter 1, one of the things that we saw is that... um, we, we like, as a world, we, we like to, to basically say that everything is always something, somebody else's fault, right? I mean, we do this. We jump to say, well, this is the Nineveh's fault. They're, they're, they dug their own graves, the Ninevites. They were wicked. They were mean. I mean, I've told you the stories last week of the torture practices they used to do. They're terrible, awful, wicked people. They don't deserve salvation. And when we start talking about terms of deserving salvation, and then we can begin to include ourselves in that. 
who really deserves salvation? Not me. None of you. I'm going to pastor you now for like three years. I can tell you. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> None of you deserve it, but that Jesus freely gave it. And that was grace. But we always look at the world as they don't deserve it. And that's how, exactly how Jonah looked at it. And, his, and the more that Jonah ran from God, the more his own self-righteousness, the more his own arrogance, the more his own pride came out and was put on display for the world to see. And the more he ran from the heathens, the more he became the heathen. The more he ran from his responsibility and his calling, God showed him the effects of that by, by the stormy seas. This is the story of Jonah, running away from responsibility, running away from calling, running away from reality. And this is where we find him today. Luckily, we're all smarter than Jonah, and so we've never had to deal with this idea of running from God before, and we never had to deal with stormy situations in life because we're smarter than Jonah, right? No, the, the reality is we are Jonah. Each and every single one of us, as, as the moment God calls us, our sin begins to be revealed more and more and more and more. As we go to the places of Nineveh, our sin becomes revealed, and we begin to see that we are just like them, that there's no difference. So this is where we find him, a tiny, stuffed confessional that Jonah forces to investigate his own soul. Jonah doesn't really believe that you could have contact with the God of Israel outside of Israel. Jonah doesn't really believe this. And so Jonah runs away because he's, he's trying not to stay in touch with God. Because he knows God will call him to do something that he doesn't want to do. And inside the belly of this fish, where we, we left off last week, that God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside that fish for three days and nights. And today we're going to look at what Jonah said in the midst of that fish. The fish is Jonah's saving grace because it gives him the confidence to face Nineveh because he's sure that God will be with him. So if you're with me, flip to Jonah chapter 2. We're just going to go through little segments of this and talk about why Jonah 2 is probably one of the most important spots in the whole book of Jonah. I think Jonah 2 and Jonah 4 are probably the most important spots all in Jonah. So it says this, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All of the waves and breakers swept over me. We're going to pause there for a moment. I think it's interesting here that Jonah ignores his sin, and he calls it distress. Do we ever do that? Like going through a really tough time, and maybe we've been screwing up, maybe we've been living in rebellion to God, and we know what God wants for us, we know the right thing, we, we know that, but we're, we're living maybe in rebellion to that. And we're like, oh man, life's just so tough right now. You know, there's sometimes like the book of Job. Job did nothing wrong. All of his friends came to him and like, you're sinning, you're messed up, you, you've totally screwed up. And, and, and Job's like, nope, I've been righteous. And at the very end of the book, God says, who are you all to question me? Job has been righteous. 
And, and, and so maybe it's that situation. It's a completely different situation. But, but sometimes we're living in rebellion to, to God, and we know it, and our life is in distress, and we're like, oh, yeah, life's just been really hard right now. But the reality is Jonah still is not admitting his sin. He, took all, he went all the way out in the middle of the ocean uh, on a one-year journey, and he gets thrown off this boat, and he basically says to the, to the, to the people who are, um, who, who are on the ship, who are apparently heathens or apparently uh, idol worshipers uh, of other religions, he, he basically says to them, it's my fault, throw me overboard. In other words, he, he's saying, I'm not going to own up to any of this responsibility. We, we've come beyond that, right, as a people? We, we move beyond that and we, we admit our own responsibility. Can you imagine what would happen if people just started saying, yeah, I screwed up, I did that, and just started admitting their own faults to other people? I mean, there's this tremendous insecurity in that because we feel like, well, if we did it at work, we'll get fired. Or if we did that at home, then we'll look, be looked down upon. If we did that to our kids, then, then they're not going to trust anything that we say. But what would happen if we just started owning up to our stuff and started saying, you know what, yeah, I did that. I'm going to be honest with you, I screwed up. What would that do to your kids? What would that do to the people around you to say that, wow, this person is honest and owns up to their stuff? But Jonah wasn't this way. I mean, listen to what he said. He, he says, in my distress, I call to the Lord. In other words, I, th- my distress, not my sin, not my running from God. Finally, I got to the point. I jumped off a ship hoping that I would not survive. Hoping that. But I still survived. So I'm going to call out to God. Living in rebellion to God is what we call sin. It's as simple as that. Jonah blames everybody but himself. This is kind of the heart of the crazy-making relationship, by the way. Maybe you have family members that blame everybody but themselves. Maybe it's you. Maybe you blame everybody but yourself. You make other people crazy. Maybe you know this. You have family members that do this. You have friends that do this. You have people at work that do this. They blame everybody but themselves. That makes you crazy, right? How many of you, just by show of hands, that makes you crazy when people do that? It makes me nuts. Okay, yeah, it, it makes us crazy. When, when there's more excuses than there are just owning up to things. And I think this is the reason why the Jesus prayer became the prayer of the early church. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, because the church had to realize that it was a confessing church. The church had to realize this is a church that simply owns up to their stuff and says, yes, we are in need of a Savior. We are broken. We have sinned against God, and we are in need of a Savior. Jesus, forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. This became the prayer of the early church. But when our lives become so clouded in self-righteousness, this becomes really difficult to see. So as Jonah cries out, he's ignoring reality. The reality that he is a sinful person. The honest truth that he is running from God. He just simply ignores it. He doesn't even say it. And then he says this, and I, I, I debated even whether or not to talk about this because this could just add confusion, but I'm going to talk about it anyways because it's theological nerdum, nerddom, and that's exactly where I fit in. Um, so I'm just going to go through it. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, 
and you listened to my cry. You probably didn't know this. I asked the staff this morning if they knew this. They're like, I've never heard this before. But did you know there's a theological debate as to whether or not Jonah was actually dead for three days and alive for three days? It doesn't make any difference in the outcome of the story and what the meaning of the story, but it's, it's, it kind of makes a difference when Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah. So there's, there's two ways to, to interpret this verse. Um, there's a little bit of controversy here. First, Jonah is actually dead, and he's crying out to God from the Hebrew Sheol, or the grave. The grave, um, in, in Hebrew, is the word Sheol, and it means the place of the dead. And he's actually crying out to God. And we would know that this is a possibility because the story that, of the parable that Jesus talks about between Lazarus and the rich man, where Lazarus, uh, or the rich man dies, and he cries out to Abraham, Please help my family, and, 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 um, and so on. And, so, and then when the fish vomited up, he actually raised from the dead. So that's one way to look at that verse. And two, the second idea is that he wasn't literally dead, but that he was uh, simply in the depths of the ocean, and that he was as good as dead. Whether or not that's the reality, who knows? But fish symbolizes that he went down to the depths. The fish at least symbolizes that Jonah experienced death. Did he actually experience death? There's, I know a pastor who says, yes, absolutely. The words and the verbiage confirms it if you look back in the, in the Hebrew. And I know another, a couple other people who say, well, if you look at it, that could be interpreted in a number of different ways. So how do we look at it? I'm just going to simply say I'm comfortable with either. However, the fish symbolizes that Jonah went down into the depths. Thank you for going with me to theological nerdum. It doesn't really matter. I'll throw another um, word out that you don't ever need to remember, but it's pseudophoria, um, which means it doesn't really matter for salvation. So believe whatever you want to believe on that. doesn't bother me. Let's keep reading. Jonah 2, 4. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. To the earth barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. This is Jonah recalling as he is sinking away. He was going down to the grave, the pit, the, the, the Hebrew word, the Sheol. And when he says the seaweed wrapped around my head and he went down into the depths and, and the earth beneath him barred me in forever, it's this idea of burial wrapping. So very symbolic of Jonah dying to his old self. Very symbolic of, uh, of the old Jonah passing away. The seaweed wrapped around him would be burial cloth and going inside the, the belly or, or the, the barred sand could mean two different things. One, it could be a sandbar, which kind of looks like a grave. Or two, the idea that he is in prison in death, barred in. But he is inside the belly of the fish. He is inside um, the belly of the fish, which is actually his tomb. He knew he was sinking to a sandy grave, and his death equaled prison or hopelessness. Even saw himself. I mean, for Jonah's mind, this was probably better reality than actually going to Nineveh. This is actually what he wanted. When God said, I want you to go to Nineveh, he would have rather have died. And he begins to confess that later in chapter 4. But the story doesn't end there. It says, 
But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Jonah is realizing that God is God no matter what. How many times in life have we been in a scenario where darkness, where brokenness was just simply surrounding us? We felt like there was no hope. We felt like it was all brokenness. We just felt like there was nothing left to contribute. We just felt like it was darkness. How many times have we been there in life? And Jonah was there and he felt like God didn't hear him. But then he says, you brought my life up from the pit. If you read through the book of Psalms, you see this idea, you brought my life up from the pit. Psalm 103, Psalm 143, I mean, I could just go on and on and on and quote Psalms, you brought my life up from brokenness. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? When we came to him in our sin and said, Jesus, here it is. This is my sin, take it. God, lead me to a place where I could be forgiven. Lead me to a place where I could live as a new creation for you. Jonah is realizing that God is still God, no matter where he is or no matter what he does. Jonah is realizing the promise, the great promise of God, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've gone, no matter what you've said wrong, no matter what you've done, God is always there as a father willing to take you back. Sometimes as a church, we, we, when we grow in our self-righteousness, when we grow into that and, and that becomes solidified in pride, and that becomes solidified in the idea that I have all of the right answers. We don't really leave the possibility for redemption open to other people. And so as we begin to consider this series, a seat at the table, the idea that we have a seat open in all of our homes, and we just want to simply invite people to that seat at the table. No strings attached. Just come over for dinner, and, uh, or come over, maybe it's your lunch table at work, Maybe it's a a breakfast table or a coffee table or something like that. The idea is we want to break that down. We want God to break that down in us so that we're not like Jonah. So we break down the pride, break down the arrogance, break down the self-righteousness and say, God, help me love people just like you love people. You brought me up from the pit as well. Whenever we go to evangelism, we realize our own sin. We sometimes begin to believe the lie that wherever the pit is in our life, got to stop listening. So many times we buy into the lie that when our spiritual life gets a little stagnant, we should just stop talking to God. Sometimes we even think, am I just talking to air? Does God even care? Does God even listen to me in this time? But this is merely just a trick of the enemy. God hears you right where you're at. God knows you. God formed you in your mother's womb and God will take care of you. And this is actually the picture of the fish. The fish that swallowed Jonah is symbolic of a womb where, where, where a mother carries a child. And, and, and as Jonah is being taken back, he's being nurtured back to life, nurtured back to being cared for, and he's in the safety of the womb or the belly of the fish. It's symbolic of that. And he gets spit back out and gets a second chance. That's our story too. Well, those of us who've been swallowed by a giant fish, I guess. Then I love how Jonah says this, those who cling to worthless idols, we're in verse 8 now, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. 
He, he, he makes this great statement because you've got to remember, he is a Hebrew prophet who understands the Hebrew scriptures. He knows the second commandment. He understands that you should not cling to worthless idols. He gets that. And he says, those who cling to these worthless idols um, turn away from God's love for them. They abandon the grace of God. But the ironic and kind of the funny thing about this statement is that the only ones that were clinging to worthless idols in this story, in the book of Jonah, were the sailors that worshipped God. Were the sailors that said, God, please don't hold us accountable for throwing this man overboard. They were the sailors that when they needed to lighten their load in the ship so they wouldn't sink, probably threw out heavy bronze statues of their own idols overboard. And when they threw Jonah out, they offered a sacrifice for his own safety and prayers for his own safety. The ironic thing is that the sailors in this story, or the idol worshipers in this story, were actually more faithful than Yahweh was. Or, I'm sorry, more faithful to Yahweh than Jonah was to Yahweh. A lot of times we get arrogant saying, well, we enjoy the relationship with God, but these people over here, they're worthless. God never sees people as worthless. Never. In fact, one of the intrinsic promises of our humanity is that you are worth so much. You're worth more than the birds, many birds. We had this conversation in the Sermon on the Mount, how many birds are you worth? That Jesus values you more than a thousand endangered species worth of birds. Jesus loves each one of us dearly. So Jonah was in love with his preconceived notions about God. Jonah was absolutely in love with those. How many times do we get that way? We love our preconceived notions about what God should do, what God should be like, and how God should act in reality in, in this world. We get in love with those. And, so, and then when God doesn't do as we think he should do, it, it actually shakes our foundations and our belief in God. And what I would simply say to that is, read the Bible. I, at the end of the book of Job, I, I, I've been talking about Job a couple times because I just finished it reading it in my own quiet time. I, I love the ending of the book of Job where they're sitting there questioning Job's righteousness and his faithfulness and, and, and all that. And, and Job um, simply doesn't respond. He just doesn't say anything. And then God responds. And God says, were you there when, when did you help the sheep give birth like I did? Were you there in the depths when I talked to the fish? And you're like, what? That's in the Bible? Yeah, read the book of Job, the very last couple chapters where God is talking. Were you there? Did you help the sun rise in the morning? Did you, do you understand that your wisdom isn't enough? In other words, all the Job's friends had all these preconceived notions about what God should do, what Job should be doing, and, and they wanted to dictate that reality to the world. But God's like, you know what? You haven't even begun to understand me yet. You haven't even begun to see my glory and majesty. You have seen this much of me. And that's almost too much for you to handle. Sometimes we're in love with our preconceived notions about God. And maybe even today, God is leading you to say, Hey, God, break down these preconceived notions about you that I have. I have this belief coming from a tradition or, or whatever it is, that you are a certain way or you do a certain thing, and I could be wrong. And search the scriptures. What does the Bible say? Search the scriptures. See what is faithful. Dig into it. Dig into what God's nature is like. 
and God, his love will begin to break down those preconceived notions that we have about what God should do in our hearts. And then verse 9, Jonah 2, 9, it says this, But I, with, shout, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah was sent into the womb of the belly of the beast so that he could reconnect with God in a powerful way. God who's always with him. In a sense, Jonah was born again here. But he really didn't change. He didn't change. He just changed his location. He's more obedient to God this time. He, he simply says, God, I will fulfill my, my vow with you. I'll hold up my end of the deal. That's simply what he says. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would have thrown in an I'm sorry. You know what I mean? It's like you ran, you called me, I knew you called me, I ran, and, and then I didn't even repent when the, the storm was going, and I just had people throw me off, and then you swallowed me into this, the, this fish, and then you, you spit me out. I think I'd at least muster up, and I, I, I'm sorry I was wrong. Right? We need to be people who admit when we're wrong. <laughs> we need to be those kind of people. Because Jonah never, in the course of this book, never repented. Ever. You look through the book of Jonah, and you look for it. And in fact, it's funny, I read this story to my kids every single night. Every night I read them this story of the book of Jonah. My, my littlest Lucy is like, I say, what stories do you want? Jonah, prophet of God. She wants Jonah, prophet of God. And it's so wrong in the children's Bible. <laughs> it's so messed up. But when Jonah's in the belly of the fish in the story, he says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And I'm like, no, that didn't happen. Jonah just said, you know, whoops, I got caught. Okay, God, I'll do what you want me to do in the first place. Fine. God still uses kicking and screaming people. I know that because he's used me. The story isn't really about the fish. The fish is not the main point of Jonah, but it provides probably the most meaning out of the book. If you think about it, Jonah overcame death and was able to proclaim the salvation of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. At the very end, he said, and I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Even when he was at odds with God, he was able to say this. And this is amazing because the Hebrew root word of salvation is um, Yeshua, while Jesus' name is Yeshua, which is very similar. There's one H difference. Jesus' name is the root word for salvation. And Jonah could have had no idea what he was proclaiming. Salvation comes from the Lord. These are days where I wish Malcolm was still around. As a Greek scholar, he would have gotten all that. If you haven't been with us, or maybe you're newer uh, to this fellowship, but uh, there's a guy named Malcolm Robertson here who was a, a Greek professor at APU for a number of years, helped purchase the property of this church, and just recently went to be with the Lord himself. He had been uh, part of this church for 60 years and um, part of the Wesleyan Church for a number of years uh, in that. Great man. So even when uh, Jonah is at odds with God over the salvation of the Ninevites, he speaks a boatload of truth here. Jonah's sin deserves death, but he's saved. Jonah deserved death. He was sinning. 
And then in his paradigm, he knew that, he understood that, but he was saved. I say that this provides some of the most meaning because it has huge implications of how we read the New Testament. We don't see a whole lot uh, of Jonah in the New Testament, but it's weird. He's not mentioned specifically in very many places, but he's sort of the theme of the story is mentioned everywhere in the New Testament. Even from when Jesus calms the storm, that's kind of on the same theme as Jonah. But flip with me to Matthew 12, 38 through 40. There's kind of this coded reference that Jesus gives to Jonah. And when he gave the reference, people were like, huh? I don't get it because the things hadn't happened yet. But, But here's what happens. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, teacher, We want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. So we get the attitude that we need to have as missionaries like Jonah from Jonah chapter 1. Not like Jonah. We need to be the opposite of Jonah. Not self-righteous, not prideful, not arrogant. We, we, need, to, we need to simply be, be humble before God. And Jonah 2, we get the meaning, uh, we get the message in it. That Jesus himself died for three days. And took his life back up again so that we might have life and we might be able to walk in mission with God. So we get the meaning out of Jonah 2. That Jonah lived and brought a message of salvation that saved the people of Nineveh. And this, this, what Jesus even says is that the people of Nineveh will stand in judgment against the nations like of Israel. Which would have been a huge paradigm shift because Israel still viewed Nineveh as a wicked place. And actually there's some Hebrew um, legend that looks at Jonah as a hero because he didn't want to go to Nineveh and salvation should not have come to Nineveh. So there's still some, some Jewish translations that look at Jonah that way. But the interesting thing is we get the meaning, the foreshadowing, that salvation comes to all people through the Lord. Nineveh was the foreshadowing that, that salvation was no longer just for the Jews. That the Jews didn't necessarily hold up their end of the bargain in the covenant with God. And so God was going to begin to spread elsewhere. We are Nineveh. We're Jonah, but we're also Nineveh. We're also Gentiles. Unless you can directly trace your lineage to one of the 12 tribes, we are Nineveh. We're the Gentiles. We're the people who don't deserve grace, but God freely has given it anyways. We're the people who don't deserve forgiveness, but God has freely given it anyways by the blood of his Son. We're the people who don't deserve goodness and mercy, but God has given it to us because he loves us. Nineveh was the foreshadowing that salvation was for all people. When you read the book of Acts, Peter gets and he makes this huge statement. You've got to remember, Peter was a solid Jew. He did not want to go to Gentiles. In fact, him and Paul disputed over this and had a little battle over this. But, but he was, the interesting thing is that Peter's, Peter, 
Peter, Pedo, is that a name? Maybe somebody's name, Pedo. Anyways, Peter, his life um, doesn't parallel. I'm trying to think of the word. I wish I was an English major sometimes. But it parallels, um, is the antithesis. Thank you. No one said it, but I thank you. I'm thanking my dictionary, my thesaurus in my brain. Um, Peter's life is the antithesis of Jonah's life. It's interesting. Peter goes down to Simon the Tanner's house. Simon the Tanner's house happens to be in Joppa, the same place that Jonah went down to flee to the ends of the earth to get away from the Jewish, from Israel and not go to those wicked Ninevites. But Peter is there, and, and God calls him to go to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius, who's a Roman, the modern-day Nineveh, the equivalent of his time. And he says yes to God. And he goes, and salvation comes to Cornelius' house. In Acts chapter 10, Peter says this, Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So God simply loves and accepts people from every nation. Circumcision doesn't matter. And this, this whole idea of the Jewish law, keeping your form of legalism, that doesn't matter anymore. But what matters is that Jesus freely accepts people. The entire story is a reminder of how much we are loved. That Jesus loved us so much that he laid down his life. He took it up again, forgave our sins so that we could live with him. It's Jonah 2 where we get our own message. When we have people sitting at our own table that we were broken, that we were messed up, that we did this stuff, and that we are going to own up to that and that God forgave us. And it's simply that, that Jesus provided his son so that we might be forgiven. I was lost, I'm found. I was sinking, but God brought me back up from the pit. I'm dead, and I was alive. It's our collective story. It's the story of the church. It's the reason why the church has lasted for 2,000 years because there is this collective longing of the human race to be redeemed. And God did it through Jesus. And over the years, more and more and more and more people have come to that startling realization that God sent his son, the Messiah, for all people. Maybe that's your story today. When you have someone sitting around the table, I would just boldly encourage you to share that story. Don't pull out a tract, although those are helpful at times to get people through the process. Don't even necessarily pull out your Bible yet because that's kind of threatening to people. But simply when you have people sitting around your table, just tell them your story. It was broken. I was messed up, and I realized the truth that is just self-evident in the Bible. I read the Bible, and I went, wow, God is speaking to me. And so I just encourage you to seek it out on your own. You're not going to save anybody. Jesus saves people. You don't save them. Jesus does. You simply have a conversation. It takes a load right off your shoulders, doesn't it? That Jesus does that work. There was one guy, i just tell a quick story and then we'll end it here. Um, a number of years back, um, I was in college and this guy was harping on me for being a Christian. I was a youth pastor. I was actually here, and he was just getting on my case. And finally, I'd had it with him. And I was like, dude, you know what? Just go look for yourself because I'm tired of answering your questions. You're just being antagonistic, and you want to fight, and I don't want to fight you. So just go look it up here. You want me to give you a Bible? He's like, no, nah, I got a Bible at home. It's like, fine. Go search for it yourself. Quit bugging me. 
How's that for evangelism, right? <laughs> and it worked. He did it. It's like five years later, I get a phone call. And, and like, What's this weird number? So I answer it, and he's like, hey, Dave, this is Steve. And I was like, hey. It wasn't my brother Steve. It's another Steve. And I said, what's going on, man? He's like, can I, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And I'm, my answer to that is always, um, I love coffee. And so we sat down and had a cup of coffee like the next day. And he's like, I just want to tell you, you were right. And I was like, what are you even talking about? I, I don't even remember. And he was like, yeah, I was bugging you about why you believe what you believe. And you got so fed up with me. You told me just to go search it out yourself. I'm sick of this. And he's like, and I did. And I, and I realized that through reading the scriptures that Jesus is God. And I became a Christian. And I, I, literally, I cannot claim any responsibility for that. That was all God. Just that I got fed up with some conversation. And I was like, dude, just go do it yourself, man. Because God wants you to seek after him. God can use all sorts of different types of evangelism methods. But it works. When you people seek God, God will show up in powerful ways. So the message, this is the message that Jesus gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, as we think through Jonah 2, as we think through the idea even that the prophet in the belly of this fish, God, as we think through that, we realize that we are sinners. God, that we are people who live constantly in rebellion to you. God, for, there's some of us here today who need to accept you right now, who need to simply say, Jesus, that is me. I live in constant rebellion to you. Would you forgive me? And God, there's some of us here today who need to take up that message, have those conversations. Lord, would you empower us in that? Would you give us the words to say? Would you build that influence that we need to build? And when you lead us in that direction, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.